Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to Explorers Guild. In this episode, we're going to be looking into the hit series The Witcher, some of the main characters and their motivations, and the universe this series is set in. Be aware there will obviously be spoilers if you haven't watched the series, read the books, or played the games. Now, if you've ever played The Witcher, you'll be aware of the fact that the outcomes of the game's storyline is very heavily dependent on your playthrough. You play as Geralt of Rivia and you make decisions with every quest and any side quest you choose to explore. Decisions that have implications on the social, political and personal endings in the game. As such, there isn't really a canonical ending. You can end up with a mishmash of favourable and unfavourable outcomes and while it's speculated that one particular set of events is the most realistic ending, there's no official confirmation. The history and deep universe of the game originates as a spin-off from a series of books first published in the 80s by Polish author Andrzej Sapkowski. And the game series was inspired by and continued this universe while taking liberties and continuing the story past the original books. The books do get fairly dark at times. The Netflix series largely followed the book storylines and it seems like it will lead on nicely to what occurs in the games. So based off this, I'm going to concentrate in this episode on telling the story of the universe and how the characters in The Witcher 3 came to be in the positions they're in, and towards the end I'll talk about the outcomes of one of the more favourable endings. Some of the things that are considered canon were excluded from game lore but will be touched upon. As always, I'm not a lawmaster, I'm just someone curious who wanted to put my research to good use, and having played The Witcher 3 there were definitely points I felt a little lost with regards to allegiances and politics. In any case, I hope this makes for a pleasant listen and a good introduction to the fascinating and vibrant world of witchering. And side note, I will be using current tense to refer to now as a time when The Witcher 3 begins for the sake of storytelling. If you check out the Twitter at ExplorersCast, all one word, I've also posted a glossary of terms and a map to act as a companion or reminder if you'd prefer. The Witcher takes place in the 13th century on a sort of alternate earth with similar hallmarks but a very different geography to the one we live in. The world itself isn't really referenced that often with the parts we become familiar with being known together as the continent and the rest remaining a bit of a mystery. Up in the snowy northeast stands Caermorn, a mountainous land that supposedly once belonged to the sea and now stands as home to a stronghold headquarters of the infamous Witcher School of the Wolf. The west of the continent borders a great sea. The realm of Redania to the northwest, ruled by a monarchy, once King Visimir, and then his son King Radovid. Below Redania is the kingdom of Temeria, wealthy and strong, but currently mired by inner turmoil due to the events of the second game. Vengerberg and Rivia are to the east of Temeria in Aedern. 
In the Western Sea sits Skelliger, a series of islands ruled by an elected Jarl of one of the clans of the island, as tradition dictates. And they were close allies with the kingdom of Sintra, their closest patch of land on the main continent, as Sintra's queen was married to Skelliger's king. And not to say no other area on the continent is important, because that would be a lie, but the last place I will mention by name here sits at the southernmost point of the known map, the Nilfgaardian Empire, ruled over by Emperor Emir, a ruthless and quite disturbed individual who was also father to the girl known as Ciri. Our protagonist is the rugged, white-haired Geralt of Rivia, Born to a powerful sorceress, Geralt was left at a young age up in the snowy mountains of Caer Morn for unknown reasons, where he was taken in by the school of the wolf and trained his entire life to become one known as a witcher. Witches are slayers by profession, and being a witcher is no ordinary job, nor is it a career you can truly retire from. The job of a witcher is to be a fearless monster slayer for hire, ridding the lands of supernatural forces and beasts that roam freely, terrorising the villages, and pocketing some gold for your hard work. To prepare for this lifetime undertaking, witchers must begin their careers as young children, training physically and mentally in rigorous tests, and taught basic magic to aid in their fighting. Once they reach a certain point in training, they are forced to ingest mutagens, alchemic compounds that alter the child's very DNA, enhancing their fighting attributes to supernatural levels. But not everyone survives such an intense and dramatic process, meaning successful witcher candidates are somewhat rare. And Geralt himself was particularly gifted during his training, so he underwent more than the usual amount of mutation experiments, causing his hair to bleach to a snowy white, a marker that would come to define him in the eyes of the villagers who sought him out. The result of these extensive enhancements is that witches are resistant to disease, exceptionally strong and fast, they have accelerated healing and a much longer lifespan than the average human. And they're sterile. They cannot pass on their traits or bear children of their own at all. Some say this is so they aren't distracted, a bit of a, an assassin trope, and some say it's just biologically impossible to have these powers and also bear children. A witch's eyes are cat-like, yellow with elongated pupils, and their striking appearance and notoriety, aided by a healthy dose of government propaganda, does not make them overly popular to the common masses. Many people are scared of witches, or disgusted by them, and Geralt in particular has a bit of a reputation thanks to the tough decisions he's had to make in the past. It's speculated that witches do not feel emotions, and for many in the profession, this is a stereotype they gladly embrace. Emotions can get in the way of making decisions for the greater good, and ideally a witcher would remain neutral when carrying out their work. But for the most part, the idea that witches don't feel emotions is more of the earlier mentioned attempt at propaganda. For them to be dehumanised and likened to other non-human races really does a good job at sullying their reputation, so the general populace doesn't rely on them too much, or trust them, or see them as heroes. Geralt, while generally calm and stoic, definitely does have emotions. Witches can fight with any weapon, their training is extensive and exhaustive, but their preferred weapons are two simple swords. One made of steel, designed for more human-based enemies, and one made of silver for the supernatural foes. 
In combat, they use their magic in the form of signs, small, basic spells with predictable outcomes. For example, one sign will create a blast of fire, and another sign might be used to create a magical barrier around the Witcher for brief protection. They also use a lot of potions, as their mutations make them naturally less susceptible to the effects of toxicity that too much potion enjoyment would bring on. When you call in a Witcher, you get more bang for your buck than you would with a regular helping hand, sometimes quite literally. Finally, Witchers live for a much longer time than the average human, and during The Witcher 3, Geralt is just shy of 100 years old. And fun fact, despite being called Geralt of Rivia, he was never actually from Rivia. The Witcher who took him in, the man who mentored Geralt throughout his childhood, Vesemir, advised that having a surname made witches seem a little bit more trustworthy. So after some deliberation, Geralt settled on Geralt of Rivia, and was at one point knighted under this name formally in one of the kingdoms on the continent, making it official. So Geralt completed his training and spent many years as a fully-fledged witcher, figuring out along the way that monster killing was not as straightforward a task as it appeared. Situations often ended up being a lot more complicated than they should be, forcing moral choices to be made where Geralt tried to stay neutral. And frustratingly, it was often humans who committed the truly evil acts, out of fear or misunderstanding, but still causing harm to beings that otherwise would have left them alone. When a scared beast attacks out of retaliation, what is a witcher to do? Often the answer is to simply follow the gold, ignore situations until you're being paid to intervene, but it isn't always that easy, and the monsters Geralt encounters are incredible, spanning from eldritch beings like wraiths to the typical werewolves, basilisks, wyverns, mutants, swamp hags, cursed striegers, and everything in between. They can be huge and lumbering, or small and powerful, but none should be underestimated. And that's something every witcher is acutely aware of. Geralt will often be found on his trusty steed, a horse named Roach. And a horse to a witcher is more than just a mode of transportation. Horses are their companions during the often lonely years they spend wandering the continent. And the horses can be a valuable ally in combat if they can hold their panic. Unfortunately, the horses don't go through the same mutations as witchers, and their lifespans are very much normal, meaning the horse we know as Roach has actually been multiple horses throughout her existence. Geralt's insistence on calling every horse he owns Roach is questioned, with some placing it on perhaps a lack of creativity on Geralt's side, but maybe that familiarity is the small comfort you need when you live a long, lonely, hard life. One of the defining moments of Geralt's career came from an unfortunate series of events that led to him being dubbed the Butcher of Blaviken by those who knew him by reputation. One year, Geralt on his journeys passed through a small town called Blaviken, home to a busy market and lots of people who just wanted to sell their hard created goods. As it so happened, another interesting person was also in the area, a young princess who had a bit of a snow white story. In her youth, it was prophesied that this princess, Renfrey, would kill her stepmother and go on a murderous rampage, and a sorcerer named Stregobor was sent to investigate her, to catch her doing anything that might be considered weird, or a bit murdery, to give her stepmother an excuse to cut her off. Stregobor reported back that why, yes, Renfrey is a mutant who will surely murder the beings around her, so a thug was hired to kill her and bring back her heart and liver. The thug found Renfrey in the forest and brutally raped her. 
but in his distraction, Renfrey managed to shove her pointy brooch into his ear and straight into his brain, killing him swiftly. She was alone, cold and hungry with nowhere to go. So she did what she could and sold herself and her body and then stole whatever else she needed for the sake of survival. She took the moniker Shrike and sort of played out the prophecy in the end, murdering people and impaling them, and despite many attempts on her life, her skills only improved until she was a swift and deadly fighter. She only really had one goal, though. To hunt down and kill Stregobor, the sorcerer who had sentenced her to this cruel fate through lies and deceit. And in the process of surviving, she'd gathered quite the following of loyal men who would carry out her orders. She finally found her chance in Blaviken, where Stregobor was masquerading as the local mage, and that's when she ran into Geralt. Stregobor hired Geralt to deal with Renfri, but as Geralt knew, not everything was as black and white as monsters versus good guys. He sought to talk Renfri out of her obsession with revenge instead. Renfri countered that either she would kill Stregobor, or Geralt could do it himself and kill the sorcerer, and Renfri would leave the town. They couldn't agree on a solution, and they ended up sleeping together. Geralt does have a bit of a way with women, and before Geralt awoke the next morning, Renfri took herself and her men down to Blaviken Market during the busiest day of the market year. Her plan was to force either Geralt or Stregobor's hand by taking the entire market hostage. In the end, Geralt ended up murdering all of her men in the market, and when he had no other choice, engaged Renfri in one-to-one -one combat where she perished. And so, Geralt became known as the Butcher of Blaviken, and Renfri, the ousted princess, tragic and murderous, was etched forever on his soul. The kingdoms of the continent live in relative harmony as they trade among themselves, settle disputes, and push the limits of their power. That's not to say there aren't battles, there are plenty, but the antagonist you'll find mentioned most often is the southern empire of Nilfgaard, who seem quite intent on dominating the entire continent with a very aggressive expansion push. Nilfgaard is hated by most of the northern kingdoms, and generally speaking, if you do not kneel at the foot of the empire when they come knocking, you'll taste their steel. Being highly organised, technologically advanced, and militarised, this was a strategy that worked very well for them. Their emperor is cunning, devious, and ruthless, and linked to Geralt through a series of very unfortunate events, or perhaps, as some would say, through destiny. His name is Emir Var Emrys, although some would know him as Duni. Emir is emperor of the Kingdom of Nilfgaard by bloodline, his father, Fergus, was the emperor until he was usurped from the throne, and Jankamir was turned into a strange humanoid hedgehog by a sorcerer by direct order of the usurper as a humiliation. The sorcerers hadn't done a particularly good job, though, as during the night, Emir would regain his human form up until the next morning. After his father was murdered, Emir was let loose into the woods with the orders he was to be chased by dogs to his death, but he managed to escape and make his way north into the kingdom of Sintra. Here, Queen Calanthe ruled alongside her husband, King Rogna. One day, while prowling the woods of Sintra, Emir, now named Duni to protect his identity, came across this king in a distressing situation. The king was unfortunately in a bit of a pickle and without urgent intervention would surely die, so Duni helped him out, and by way of payment for the service, asked for the law of surprise to be invoked. This is a pretty big deal, 
The law of surprise is no joke. It's a binding, powerful law that transcends a simple human contract. Taken from the wiki, the law of surprise is a custom as old as humanity itself. The law dictates that a man saved by another is expected to offer to his saviour a boon whose nature is unknown to one or both parties. You can request one of two things. One being the first thing that comes to greet you. The second being what you find at home yet don't expect. When Dooney invokes the law of surprise, the king travels back home to find out his wife is pregnant. Now Dooney and this unborn child are linked through not only a contract, but an infinite destiny. Dooney would bide his time for many years, 15 years exactly, before curiosity overcame him and he ventured forth to find this child, the Princess Pavetta. Meeting her late at night in his human form, the two would fall in love, but as a princess, the courtship process is not as straightforward as settling with a lover. There are all sorts of expectations and politics involved in who the future ruler of a kingdom will marry. To satisfy this, a feast was held by Queen Calanthe on Pavetta's 15th birthday, where suitors from all over the continent could vie for the princess's hand in marriage. And when all suitors came and went, and Pavetta was still unhappy, a mysterious stranger in a helmet presented himself before the kingdom of Sintra and declared Pavetta belonged to him through the law of surprise invoked 15 years before. Calanthe was incredulous. Her husband was long dead at this point, and to stake such a claim was really an insult to her position as ruler, removing her part in the decision-making entirely. Calanthe fooled Dooney into removing his helmet before midnight, so all in the court saw his bizarre cursed form, and everyone in the court jumped to their feet and drew their weapons to defeat this hideous creature. Well, everyone except two in particular. One guest from the Skellige Isles, a druid called Mousesack, and one Geralt of Rivia. They leapt up to defend Dooney against the attackers, and a fight broke out in the court. But three against many does not make for great odds, and not before long an attacker broke through the crowd and managed to stab Dooney, to the horror of a distressed and terrified Pavetta. And then something magical happened. Pavetta was gifted with magical ability, and was known as a source. If this magical ability isn't harnessed healthily and brought under control, it can have pretty devastating consequences. But when a person becomes incredibly emotional, they accidentally unleash all the pent-up power. Pavetta lost all control and ran to Dooney's side, creating a whirlwind of power around them both, sending furniture and people flying while she cried over her lover. If Geralt and the druid Mausak had not intervened and managed to get Pavetta under control, the castle would surely have been devastated and potentially the royalty of Sintra eradicated. As it was, Pavetta was silenced, and when the dust had settled, a more civilised discussion took place, where as the clock struck midnight, Dooney showed his human form once more, and Calanthe approved their marriage after seeing their love was real. Thus, the curse was lifted fully, and Dooney became a full-time human again. As thanks, Dooney asked Geralt what he wanted in payment for saving his life by leaping to his defence, and Geralt not really wanting anything, but compelled to request something, invoked the law of surprise as a bit of a sick joke. And almost immediately, Dooney realised Pavetta was pregnant. The law of surprise strikes again. 
Unfortunately for Geralt, this now means he is tied by fate to the unborn daughter of the future queen of Sintra. He left that one on the back burner and went off on his way. Pavetta and Dooney would live happily for a short while, but the fact that Dooney was secretly heir to the Nilfgaardian Empire was not one that could remain hidden much longer. He was approached by a sorcerer called Vilgefortz. Like many people, Vilgefortz wanted wealth and power, and he'd heard of a prophecy concerning the rightful heir to the Nilfgaardian Empire, knowing that if he helped Amir return and recapture the throne, he would be rewarded. But he also knew something else, a secret about the newly born daughter of Pavetta and Duni that even her parents were not aware of. This child was one in a long line of descendants of an elven sorceress with considerable power. This power, known as the Elder Blood, was passed on through the years down the bloodlines, laying dormant until it reached the daughter of Pavetta. This child would grow up to have considerable power, power that would be in high demand by many, many people, including the sorcerer Vilgefortz. So Dooney and Vilgefortz schemed to take back the Nilfgaard throne with Ciri in tow, but Queen Calanthe would never have let such a thing happen, so they had to be deceitful and planned to fake their deaths to escape. Pavetta figured out the plan and managed to hide baby Ciri in the castle just before they set sail, leaving just Pavetta and Dooney on board, and when Dooney found out, they began to fight. At this point, it's rumoured Dooney did not love Pavetta, and it's theorised he never did. He was simply a pawn in a greater plan to manoeuvre the Elder Blood for a greater purpose. Whatever the reason, the fight culminated in Pavetta being pushed overboard and perishing in the sea. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The rest of their plan went off without a hitch, and Dooney faked his death at sea and became Emir once more, leading a revolt against the usurper who had killed his father all those years ago. Pavetta and the man they thought was called Dooney would never be seen again. Thus, under Emperor Emir's reign, Nilfgaard continued on its journey of conquering the northern lands in the continent. His daughter, Princess Cirilla, lived with her grandmother, Queen Calanthe, in Sintra, and Emir plotted to get her back, planning on sieging Sintra and kidnapping her for his own nefarious plans. Princess Cirilla, also known as Ciri, is a pivotal character in the Witcher series, and I'll come back to her soon. But first, let's look at a couple of the other important women, Triss Merigold and Yennefer of Vengerberg. Both Triss and Yennefer are powerful sorceresses. 
When a child is young, often they will exhibit signs of latent magical power that can be sensed by others trained in the arts of magic. And in order to harness this power, the child will be sought out across the lands and trained in schools. Not unlike witches, but different in many ways too. Triss had a relatively normal upbringing and was trained in magical powers, showing particular skill in healing magic. Defined by her fiery red hair, cornflower blue eyes, and a kind demeanor, Triss would eventually become quite controversially intertwined with Geralt and Ciri. Yennefer, however, did not have a pleasant upbringing. When her mother gave birth, her parents looked upon her with disgust, as they realized their newborn was disfigured, a hunchbacked child who must surely be a curse upon their family. Her father beat her relentlessly until he packed his bags and left the family blaming the mother for the elven blood in her line that must have caused the deformity. And her mother, devastated by the loss of her husband, picked up where the father had left off, beating Yennefer throughout her childhood. The magical ability within Yennefer was sensed, and she was eventually taken in to have the ability nurtured, the stern but fair rectoress Tissaia becoming a somewhat firm replacement mother figure for Yennefer. Both Yennefer and Triss attended the magical academy called Aratusa, though not at the same time, with Yennefer being much older than Triss. One of the climatic moments of a sorceress's training comes in a ritual of perfection, where any physical flaw, no matter how big or small, is removed from the body of those in study, curing Yennefer of her disfigurements, and revealing a form so achingly beautiful her reputation would precede her for decades to come. Her long, curled black hair, violet eyes, and porcelain skin made her as striking as she was powerful, the side effect of this beautifying treatment that helped their age defy years was it made the sorceresses sterile, never able to bear children of their own, something that would eventually come to bother Yennefer more than she realized it would. In the moment of her transformation, all she wanted was to be beautiful. When Triss graduated Aratusa, she became a royal advisor in Temeria, as is expected of all sorceresses in the land. And while she studied and worked, she befriended Yennefer, the two of them becoming quite close. Sometime after Triss and Yennefer had become friends, Yennefer set up shop in a nearby town, offering her magical services to those who needed it, treating small ailments and helping those who were willing to pay. This is where Yennefer and Geralt would meet for the first time in an encounter that would change the course of both of their lives forever, whether they wanted it or not. Geralt had become begrudging friends with a travelling bard known as Yaskier, or Dandelion. Dandelion was a rather loud, flirtatious, ostentatious kind of guy, pretty much the complete opposite of Geralt, but the two ended up travelling together often, and the bard would write songs about the White Wolf Witcher, attempting to slowly change his disastrous reputation from the Bludger of Blaviken to somewhat of a hero. And while Geralt might indicate otherwise, he does truly care for Dandelion. On one such adventure, the pair were fishing at a village, when their line caught, and rather than catching their dinner as they'd hoped, they pulled up a strange-looking vessel. Geralt saw the seal on the container and warned Dandelion not to touch it, but the bard, ever confident as ever, fought with Geralt, and the seal broke free, loosing a powerful creature known as a djinn, who wasn't particularly happy about the circumstances of its freedom. The djinn grabbed Dandelion by the throat and almost killed him before Geralt managed to utter an exorcism that drove it away, leaving one very broken Dandelion in its wake. In the nearby town, they were advised only one would be able to help them, a powerful mage by the name of Yennefer. 
When Geralt got to the house Yennefer was staying at, he found a strange tableau. People under the spell of Yennefer's pretty much doing whatever she asked of them, which apparently involved a lot of sex. Geralt, ever the efficient worker, asked Yennefer for her help, and she responded with the biting sarcasm she became known for. But after realizing it was a djinn who had harmed Dandelion, she became interested and offered to help. For a djinn is no ordinary monster. A djinn is essentially a genie that can grant wishes. And Yennefer decided that if the person who had freed it could use all their wishes, she could capture it and use its power for her own. Things didn't go quite to plan. Dandelion was indeed healed, but once Geralt realized what Yennefer was trying to do, he tried his damnedest to stop her, certain that she would not be able to contain a djinn alone. And in the short time since he'd met her, he'd grown infatuated with her. While Yennefer formed a ritual that would hold and weaken the djinn, straining and struggling against its immense power, she demanded Geralt use his last wish, and seeing no other way out, Geralt tried to use his wish to save her life, offering it so quietly, not even Yennefer heard what was said. No one really knows what the third wish truly was, but the result of the wish was that Yennefer and Geralt's fates were forever intertwined, their lives bound until the very end. This would be the start of a long time on-off relationship between Geralt of Rivia and Yennefer of Vengerberg, where the sexual tension was high and the sass was off the charts. But in the back of both their minds lingered the question, was what they were feeling really love? Or was it just the result of the powerful spell of the chin tying them together for eternity? Their tumultuous relationship fascinated Triss Merigold, who sought out Geralt and seduced him with magic while the two were in the Witcher hold of Kaer Morhen. They spent a long while together, Triss completely in love with Geralt, but once the love spell faded, Geralt realised he didn't feel the same way and put an end to their relationship. That didn't stop the what-ifs that would dog them for years to come and made for some very spicy moments between Yennefer, Triss and Geralt, but Triss never really got over her love for Geralt. Years later, Nilfgaard would make their play for the Northern Kingdoms during the iconic Battle of Sodden Hill, and Triss would be injured and presumed dead. This battle was a big one. Nilfgaard had been testing the waters, pushing the limits of their empire and conquering as much of the north as they could, led by the freshly reinstated Emperor Emir. Emir began by invading Sintra. Queen Calanthe, his stepmother, still ruled Sintra and looked after Cyrilla, Emir's daughter. He knew that if he could invade the kingdom and find his daughter, disposing of Calanthe in the process, he could marry Ciri and become the de facto ruler of Sintra. Yep, you heard that right. He wanted to find and marry his own daughter to cement his leadership. This was Emir's driving force for much of Ciri's life, and when Nilfgaard finally invaded Sintra, a knight by the name of Cahir was sent out, tasked with just one job bring Ciri back alive. Up until this point, Ciri had enjoyed a nice childhood. She had close ties with Sintra's allies, the islands of Skellige that lay directly to Sintra's west, and her grandmother Calanthe tried to keep the truth of her birth and her ties to Geralt of Rivia a secret. But through the loose lips of her nanny, she found out the truth and began to firmly believe that her destiny lay with this mysterious white-haired witcher, knowing one day she would seek him out 
and train with him. And in fact, Geralt even visited Sintra with the intention to see Ciri, but was blocked by Calanthe, who led him to believe this child born by the lore of surprise was in fact a boy, and Geralt left soon after, having still not met her. When Ciri was around 10 years old, the formidable forces of Nilfgaard finally broke through into Sintra's capital, where the Sintran army fought valiantly, but was soon overwhelmed. Barricaded inside the castle, Ciri and Calanthe had very little hope of surviving, and the chances of survival grew even slimmer when it was revealed that, unbeknownst to them, a Nilfgaardian spy was in their midst. When Calanthe organized Ciri's escape, the Weasley spy informed the invaders, and the escape party ran straight into the hands of the Nilfgaardian knight Cahir. Through luck, Ciri would escape Cahir, but was left young, alone, and terrified, wandering the forests nearby, desperate for an ally. A woman by the name of Golden Cheeks took Ciri in, tending to her and looking after her as if she was her own. And as if by fate or destiny, Geralt also happened to be nearby and had come to the aid of a man who'd been besieged by a mob of monsters while traveling. The man had nothing to offer Geralt as reward or thanks, so once again, Geralt asked for the law of surprise in return for saving the man's life. And when the duo returned to the man's home, the surprise turned out to be a small, ashen-haired child his wife had brought in and cared for. Geralt and Ciri were finally properly united, and Geralt took the small, defiant child up to Kaer Morn to begin her training and hide her from those desperate to steal her away. Emperor Emir was furious with his knight, who had allowed Ciri to slip from his grasp. He imprisoned Cahir and set his attention on capturing the rest of the Northlands. Sintra was firmly in his grasp, but of course, the Nilfgaardian Empire would settle for nothing less than total domination. The Battle of Sodden Hill would herald the muddy, bloody defining end to the First War, as the Northern Kingdoms fought to stop Nilfgaard from crossing the Yoruga River that cut off the Northern Kingdoms from the south across the middle of the continent. Here, a great army of 100,000 soldiers teamed up with mages from across the lands to hold the great armies of Nilfgaard at bay. And working against the mages was one of their own, a sorceress named Fringilla, who would use her magic to aid the Nilfgaard army. The North would, after much sacrifice, prove victorious in defeating Nilfgaard, but it came at a heavy cost. 14 of the 22 mages who fought died. Triss was presumed dead, and Fringilla succeeded in blinding Yennefer. While her eyesight was eventually restored using magic, this affected Yennefer heavily in an emotional capacity, leaving mental scars that would stay with her for the rest of her life. Ciri trained at Kaer Morn with Geralt and Vesemir to become a witcher, and it seemed she had a natural inclination for the physical and mental training it required. She was just good at it. At first, she was afraid of these mysterious witches in their drafty keep, but after some time, she warmed to each of them, and they became her close family and friends for the years to come. Not long after she arrived, however, she began to exhibit strange behaviours that left the witches perplexed and concerned. The witches sent for Triss Merigold, who it was revealed had survived the battle she was thought dead in, and Triss became somewhat of a sister figure to Ciri as she worked with the special young girl to find out what was going on. One of these things happened to be puberty, but the other thing was slightly stranger. Ciri would sometimes go into a trance and speak in a strange voice, at one point even prophesizing the death of Geralt but she would never remember these moments or even understand them herself. 
Through their work together, Triss found out that Ciri was in fact a source, like many of the young ones who train in the magical arts. But the power that ran through Ciri was ancient and more intense than anything Triss had ever seen. She knew that she alone would not be able to control it if the time came to do so. They needed the help of someone more powerful. Yennefer was called upon to meet Ciri, and it was decided she should study at Aretusa to learn to control her intense, latent magic power. An important facet of the world of the Witcher is the complicated relationship between humans and elves. So the world that we know didn't actually originally belong to the humans at all. Elves, known as the Anche, supposedly originally inhabited the continent with a much longer average lifespan than humans. The universe of the Witcher is in fact a multiverse, aka a group of multiple universes, and one day long ago a great cataclysm occurred across the entire multiverse, causing many of these universes to collide. This cataclysm, called the conjunction of the spheres, threw many creatures together unexpectedly, throwing humans into the world that housed the continent, where they lived peacefully until the elven women began bearing the children of the human men, and the humans began to overrun the lands. This did not please many of the elves in charge. The humans also found a way to harness this strange power that had appeared alongside the conjunction, known as Chaos, and used it to create the first mages. When an elven sage named Lara Doran fell in love with a human sorcerer, there was a lot of fuss made. And eventually, when the sorcerer was killed by humans, all-out war was sparked that brought the elven population to the edge of extinction. But this powerful couple had born a child, and this legacy, a human lineage with the blood of the elder elves, would live on through generations before it found itself within Ciri. Throughout the continent today, there are elven ruins scattered, and in fact, Aratusa itself, along with the other magical schools, were all of elven creation. Now, to an elf, a human with a limited lifespan and shortened stature is inferior, and mostly despised, and humans are particularly hostile towards anything they deem non-human, ranging from elves to dwarves and some of the more fanciful sorts like vampires who are often oppressed. The Enshe are still around today, but in few numbers, and some can be found alongside other persecuted races, in guerrilla groups known as the Squirrels, who allied with the Nilfgaard during the wars, and were subsequently disowned by their queen. The other elves relevant to the story are the Enel. These elves left our world and now inhabit a different continent entirely, where time moves more slowly, governed by a king and constantly at war with unicorns for reasons I won't go into right now, other to say the NL enjoyed invading other worlds and massacring the people inhabiting the lands, and the unicorns hated evil. The cousins of the Enshe, these elves are more formidable in strength and number, but still hold a connection to the Enshe. The NL would travel across universes and bring back humanoid slaves to serve them until the unicorns took away the gate that allowed them to traverse space and time, leaving their travelling potential somewhat stunted. Their preferred place to visit was the continent that still housed the dwindling numbers of their Enshe cousins, as the humans who'd taken over provided many slaves. When they visited, they'd don their fearsome, skeletal-looking armour and often used magic to create spectral projections for themselves so they looked like spooky wraiths. This, combined with their spiriting away of the local humans, ended up giving them the nickname of the Wild Hunt. 
For some reason, the humans on the continent just sort of accepted the Wild Hunt's random appearances as an eventuality and didn't even try to fight it or figure it out, leading to them mostly being a mystery. The threat that eventually truly mobilized the Wild Hunt came in the form of the White Frost, a destructive force of legend, a deep, cold blizzard that swallowed worlds and froze them entirely. The White Frost was creeping up in the world of the Anel, and despite their mage's best efforts, they could slow the frost down but not stop it altogether. And if they didn't stop it, the whole world and everyone on it would perish. Ciri held the Elder Blood within her, and the elves considered this blood stolen centuries ago because of the humans and elves mating. Not only did they want what they saw as their own property back from the filthy humans, they also wanted to harness the power to stop the White Frost and to reopen the gate that let them easily travel between worlds. As it stood, they did not have the power to stop the Frost, nor the power to get their people off-world to save them from its inevitable grasp. And so, the Wild Hunt relentlessly came for Ciri. Yennefer and Ciri travelled to Arethusa to begin her magical schooling and reached the island of Thanid that housed Arethusa just in time to attend a mages conference happening at the same time. Whilst hoping to just be kept up to date with the goings on in the magical world, they got more than they bargained for when it turned out there was a coup, a dastardly plan to steal Ciri away. In desperation to escape her pursuers, she ended up jumping through an ancient, unstable portal and spat out alone once more in unfamiliar surroundings. This would mark the start of some disturbing times for Ciri. She wound up helping a group of young criminals known as the Rats who'd been displaced by Nilfgaard's armies, and wound up with a strange Stockholm Syndrome-esque relationship where she was subjected to numerous sexual assaults and yet still stayed with the group. This lasted a short time before a Nilfgaardian bounty hunter tasked with killing Ciri found their group and slaughtered all but the girl. You might think that a bounty hunter hired by Nilfgaard would be interested in bringing Ciri to Emir, but within the higher ranks of the Empire there were other plans at play, and the men who had taken over the disgraced Gahir's position were more interested in overthrowing the monarchy entirely. This bounty hunter was thus tasked with killing the girl, but rather than fulfilling his bounty, he imprisoned Ciri and severely mistreated her, beating and abusing her while forcing her to be a champion in his cousin's arena. Through a helpful ally, she did escape this abuse and sought out another tower that was said to be the twin of the one she had taken a portal in on Thaned, hoping that if she did find it, it could take her back to the islands and to Aratusa. Her escape was pursued by the bounty hunter and the man who'd hired him, but they were scared away by the wild hunt, and when Ciri found her way to the tower and crept inside, she found herself teleported to a strange land. The land of the NL. The NL elves, as mentioned earlier, were obsessed with the idea of the humans repaying their debt in the form of the stolen elder blood running through Lara Doran's ancient bloodline. An elf known as Avalak greeted Ciri and informed her of this, along with the declaration that to atone for humanity's crime, she would need to produce a child with the king of the NL, Oberon, to put that powerful elder blood back into the elven bloodline. And she wouldn't be allowed home unless she did. In the stunning elven vistas of the capital Tirnalia, with its flowing waterfalls, delicate architecture and greenery, they met Eredin the commander of the Wild Hunt, who was preoccupied with dealing with the threat of the native unicorns and their constant war. So Ciri had an ultimatum. 
better child with a king of elves or stay a prisoner on this world forever. I mean, what choice did she have? She begrudgingly agreed to their terms, but the elderly King Oberon had a lifelong hatred of humans, and his disgust led to an inability for him to adequately perform in the bedroom. Eredin suggested that perhaps a potion to improve his performance might be necessary, and trusting, Oberon agreed. Around the same time, Ciri ventured out and met the unicorns who were so hated by the elves. Through a small shared history where Ciri had once helped a unicorn in need, they trusted her and explained the history of the gate that they had closed off to the wild hunt long ago. This gate, the gate of the world, could only be accessed by those who had the elder blood. And just as this world had once belonged to the unicorns, was now under siege by the NL elves, if they got this power of the elder blood, the same fate would undoubtedly befall her home as well. As it turned out, when Ciri returned to the capital, the potion that Oberon had taken from Eredin was in fact poison, specifically planned by Eredin to give him the crown. The king of the NL was dead. This was unrest unlike anything the elves had known in recent times, and chaos ensued. Only Avalak really knew the truth of Oberon's death. Ciri attempted to escape the capital, with Eredin pursuing her, but he underestimated her abilities and was defeated by this relatively young girl who fled to the unicorns for help. Her friend, the unicorn she'd once healed, told her she needed to jump, jump to another world and escape this one, but Ciri exclaimed she didn't know how! How could she possibly jump between the worlds? The unicorn guided her and helped her ability to jump between worlds manifest, and her title as Lady of the Worlds was cemented. It took her a few attempts as she figured out the scope of her power, but after landing on many different worlds, she found her way back home. Nilfgaard's advance may have been stopped temporarily at the Battle of Sodden Hill, but they still held Sintra. The people living there, however, were unhappy and rebellious, and Emir knew he needed to find a way to improve the mood and stop their rebellion. He still had people out across the continent searching for Ciri, and when one of his knights brought back a girl that was clearly an imposter, he decided it would be best if he pretended to believe that she was the true Ciri for the sake of the kingdom. He had ordered that Geralt be disposed of, sending his forces after the Witcher, and so Emir and Geralt's timelines became intertwined once more. Yennefer was captured and held at Stigger Castle, a formidable building set atop a rock surrounded by the ocean. Ciri took it upon herself to travel to Stigger Castle to bargain for Yennefer's freedom, but the dastardly sorcerer Vilgefortz refuses to release Yennefer. It turned out his plans were rather similar to the elves. Vilgefortz wanted to impregnate Ciri and use her placenta for her elder blood so he could have the power for himself and it turned out he had been experimenting pretty gruesomely on pregnant women, killing them in the process. Geralt intervened and saved Ciri from the depraved Vilgefortz, and she went on to kill the bounty hunter who'd pursued her since her escape from Thanad. Geralt learned of Emir's alternative name, Dooney, the cursed being from Sintra who bore his child of surprise and of his true intentions, the incestuous plans to marry his own daughter, and called him out for what he was, a monster. While Emir took Ciri from the castle, Yennefer and Geralt were left alone together and planned their joint death by suicide, but as Emir left the castle and Geralt's words echoed around his mind, 
Seeing how distraught Siri was at the thought of her adoptive parents' deaths, he let her go, and she managed to stop Yennefer and Geralt from carrying out their suicide plans. From here, Amir would go on, after his change of heart, to marry fake Siri to cement his relationship of Sintra, and the majority of the continent were none the wiser to the realities of their emperor's relationship. So the relationship between these pivotal characters is complicated. Geralt and Yennefer have a tumultuous on-off relationship, hampered by a wish made long ago that forever tied their destinies together. But they come together to care for Ciri, and Ciri cares for them rather a lot. Amir, while he finally found Ciri at the age of 16 and planned to use her for his own gain to control his empire, came to love Ciri, and through that fatherly love, left her in the care of Geralt and Yennefer, and halted his orders for their death. While all three knew Emir was Ciri's true father, they tried not to speak of it. So that about concludes part one of the Explorer's Guild Noob's Guide to the Witcher 3. Tune in next time for part two, where we look in more depth at some of the events that have happened on the continent leading up to the Wild Hunt's desperate searching for Ciri. Thank you so much for listening. Do remember to check out at ExplorersCast on Twitter, where I'll be posting updates on the episodes as they come out. And uh, I hope you enjoyed. See you next time.